Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. This week, it is my honor to welcome to the podcast retired UK Air Marshal Sir Greg Bagwell, who had served as Deputy Commander of Operations at RAF Air Command. He has also served in Iraq, Kosovo, and Libya campaigns. He's currently president of the Air and Space Power Association. Sir Bagwell, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Dimitri, and it's Greg, please. So you have been recently very vocal about the need to throw out the usual training and maintenance playbook as far as pilot training for the Ukrainian Air Force is concerned, um, and that we need to start looking at providing them with Western aircraft. Um, and we'll get into that. But the first question I have for you is, uh, really, since the beginning of this war, the Ukrainians have been asking the West for more air capabilities. They've been outmatched by the Russians, both um, in terms of aircraft, as, as well as missiles that are raining down in Ukrainian cities, including this week, the ter- terrible strike on Venezia, uh, killing multiple children. And uh, one of the things they've been asking for is, of course, MiG-29s uh, that uh, Poland has been willing to provide, but so far um, has not gotten uh, acquiescence from other NATO partners. What are your thoughts on the MiG-29s? Should we consider providing those uh, right away to the Ukrainian Air Force since they're already familiar with the aircraft, even though the avionics have probably been upgraded to NATO standards over the last 20 years? But nevertheless, it's a much uh, less steeper hill to climb for them to learn how to operate these platforms. Yeah, and let me just quickly uh, set the scene here to, to, so your audience understands where I'm coming from. So I retired about six years ago. I was a combat pilot for at least 25 years of my 35-year career. Um, so I, I'm coming at this with, with a fair amount of knowledge and experience. I flew the Tornado and the F-18 and had a, a few trips on the Typhoon. Uh, I was very lucky to get on that. So I've seen aircraft of, of all those last thirty decades, the last three decades. So I understand the differences between how technologies come on and, and therefore how uh, how it might be applied today. Yes, I'm six years out. That actually allows me a bit more of a platform to speak a bit more freely, if I'm honest. Um, but as the president of the Air and Space Power Association, it's one of our roles is to promote air power. So when 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 the war started, obviously it all caught us, um, you know, and, and and quite an emotional um, start to it, and and, and shock and outrage. And what I detected very early on was that air wasn't really getting a a sort of argument aired, what I considered to be a a fair balanced argument. You know, I I was very quick to talk about no-fly zones, not necessarily because I felt they were achievable because there were massive um, complications in doing so. But I wanted people at least to debate what the issues were and try and understand so that we could make a rational choice as to what we should or shouldn't do in support of Ukraine. And of course, in the last few months, we have sent goodness knows how much um, land and, and potentially other systems to Ukraine. So clearly we are we are happy to equip them. It's now become a question of, well, what, what crosses a so-called fictional red line? And the MiG-29s, of course, became sort of the totemic part of the argument. Why MiG-29s? Well, any platform that you already own clearly simplifies the challenge of integrating it into your system. If, even if the avionics were a little bit different, at least you you recognize the basic mechanics of the airplane, the basic handling characteristics. You've probably got roll equipment on your bases that you can connect and, and refuel and, and, and power. So, so it would make sense to bring in systems that you already operated. Also, and most critically, probably maintenance, yeah, right? 
yeah maintenance absolutely you know if you, an engine's an engine right and and, and if you you're familiar with it it, it 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 clearly makes things a little straightforward and of course you may even have some compatibility on spares uh, and things like that um and I, in fact i mean some some of those factories i think are still located in ukraine so so some of that would have been simplified and also weapon integrations really critical um you know it's particularly with modern weapons now you need an avionics data bus that can talk to your weapon that the weapon talks to the aircraft and the radar so it isn't just as simple as bolting on any old weapon to any old airplane you you need that system to be able to work from start to finish so so the mig 29s made a lot of sense because it, it was really giving them more of what they already had the complication of that of course was twofold one would it be seen as a red line um and, and of course we seem we seem to have decided for russia what that red line was um because i think we've seen putin you know putting plenty of red lines up but but of course it, it it's a dangerous game of bluff or poker and and nobody wants to cross cross a line that takes you somewhere you don't want to be the nations that would have had to give them up were the nations that were nearest russia those aeroplanes were still potentially part of their defense mechanism. So there was a conversation that needed to be had about, well, do I want to be the country giving them up? Because now, I'm, now I've become the enemy of Russia rather than it being a NATO-wide offer. Um, and then there was also the conversation being had about whether those nations would then get backfilled with more modern weapons, F-16s, F-15s, whatever it might have been, so that they could at least give those aircraft up without worrying about denuding their own their own um, their own defences. So that's why that then became a problem. And of course, we've been arguing about it for what seems like months. And and there are some who've said, well, Ukraine doesn't need it. And and I think that's a cop out. I, I think that's often being used as a convenient way to sort of duck the issue when the ukraine have been crying out for it since day one now you know call me old-fashioned but when a friend calls for something you, you don't really ask them why you you just you you help them um so I, I think it's a bit disingenuous to say we know better as to what ukraine does or doesn't need now one of the problems with the MiG-29 plan, from what I understand, has been the transport. The, the Pol Polish have not been willing to fly it into Ukraine because uh, by law they could be considered a combatant in that particular situation or allow even Ukrainian pilots to fly it into uh, Ukraine from Poland. So they were uh, proposing a plan to fly them to Ramstein Air Base, U.S. Air Base in Germany, and then have the Ukrainians pick them up from there which would simply shift the responsibility and would make the U.S. and potentially even Germany combatant by law um, and potentially uh, face retaliation from Russia. So given those challenges, is there a way to transport those planes without um, you know, crossing that line where the, Russia, uh, the Russians would be justified at targeting NATO forces? Yeah, I, I'm no, I'm no expert on on the conventions of warfare. I, I know that I know the basic rules and laws, and but I'm not a lawyer, so I I wouldn't necessarily go to, go to a court for somebody. I mean, most of the Western leaders have been to Kiev. Were they combatants because they 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 went to Kiev? Um, so the idea that somebody landing an aeroplane in the Western a Western airfield in Ukraine has suddenly become a combatant, I think, is a bit rich. I mean, you clearly wouldn't want an accident to happen where. You know, let's say a Polish pilot flying a Polish aeroplane um, into Ukraine w was engaged by a Russian aircraft. But you could find a way to resolve that. I, I think the Ramstein thing was more about it being seen 
to be coming from America rather than from Poland, as opposed to a logistics thing, because actually you were flying further away to get there. You know, you you could put them on a truck. You you could you could tow them over the border. You could bring the uh, Ukrainian pilots into a friendly neighboring country, and they could fly them out. I I I really don't think that's that difficult. <laughs> I think it could have been done. If I had no one made a fuss about it, it probably would have got done, and uh, no one would have realized how. So yeah, I I think we've overegged the challenge of the logistics. I I think this was more about who was prepared to be the gifter um, and did it need to be America? Because Russia, Russia might have thought it could have done something to Poland, but it definitely wouldn't have thought it could have done something to Russia, uh, to America. But this is where Article 5 comes in. And Article 5 is about collective self-defense. So if there was an attack on Poland, that is an attack on NATO. There's no discussion. Um, and NATO should understand that. Of course, if, if a NATO aircraft was attacked in Ukraine, that actually doesn't invoke Article 5. U Ukrainian territory is not inside the area covered by Article 5. So there was a lot of people making Article 5 arguments about, oh, we're going to start a war, we'll trigger Article 5. Well, you don't trigger Article 5 in Ukraine. It's, it's not in the NATO area. Now, you don't, I mean, obviously those aircraft, um, you know, original Warsaw Pact aircraft, I believe actually came uh, to Poland from East Germany um, when Germany reunified and donated those aircraft to Poland. Uh, since then, Poland has joined NATO. Those aircraft presumably have been significantly upgraded to NATO communication standards, avionics and the like. Do you think it will present a challenge to the Ukrainians to incorporate them into their battle plans and communication systems and the like? Yeah, it would undoubtedly add some complexity. And I've flown against these aircraft. So we obviously, when, when they became part of uh, Germany, um, I've trained against them. So I, I've, I've done training combat and, and worked alongside those aircraft. So, so you know, I, I'm very familiar with them. Um, yes, they've been upgraded in certain areas, certain standards of avionics, certain things would have needed to have been brought up. And, and over time, being able to integrate different weapons, etc. particularly because we, you know, we would not have wanted to be reliant, clearly, on a, on a Russian supply chain for obvious reasons. Um, so, yes, they are different. Those differences probably wouldn't have a, um, a huge impact on the operation of the aircraft itself yes you need some maintenance changes yes you will need some new uh, understandings of how the systems work but the training would take care of that how could you integrate them would would be a challenge and i i genuinely don't know today how the integrated network in ukraine functions and, and if i did i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't tell anybody sure. um but if 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 it was me right now in Ukraine, if I was the Ukrainian air commander, I would be looking to fight a very, very different campaign to the one that I would have fought as a Western NATO airman. NATO has the luxury of mass. It has sophisticated networks. It has multiple roles covered by different platforms, uh, which requires a high level of integration and a high level of sophistication where you've almost got a layered defense. You've got one system doing one part of the role, another system doing the other. You're not going to see that in Ukraine. Ukraine probably doesn't have the mass and, and almost certainly doesn't have the control of the air to allow it to launch large multi-function missions. Um, if, if it was me, and it does appear that this is what they're doing, I would I would operate more as a guerrilla air force. 
Um, you know, you'd obviously be looking to disperse the aircraft. You'd be looking to keep them out of harm's way for obvious reason um, to try and keep them safe. You wouldn't want to fly them, you know, in a predictable way because you might get picked off because you could get outnumbered if you if you have a you know a moment where you just accidentally fly into a concentration of of, of enemy. Um, I'm assuming they've got a pretty good understanding of the Russian um, orbit and and what they're up to. So I would be using that to, if you like, do raids in, in at moments of my choosing, make them unpredictable, make them at strange times and take on strange areas and, and really keep the Russians guessing, um, which would actually allow you to operate in much smaller packages and possibly stay discreet. So you could end up not therefore having to integrate different platforms that may not be compatible with data links or, or IFF or whatever it might be. So, so you could get around that problem by like running small teams that do different things at different times. That makes sense. So of course the MiG-29s are limited in numbers and eventually there's gonna be a, a, another solution needed even if those aircraft are supplied. And when it comes to Western um, aircraft, um, which platforms do you think are most likely to end up in Ukrainian hands in terms of um, the ones that are going to be easiest for them to operate and, and train on? Um, is it going to be the F-16? Is it going to be air, other air, aircraft platforms that, that you think are uh, going to be uh, easiest for us to transfer to them? Yeah, it's a great question. And, I, and I've been tweeting about this probably since, well, at least April, but possibly even before then. Um, because the longer we've talked, way back when people said it couldn't be done, it would take too long. Well, that, that's nearly six months ago. I mean, you, you could have done a Western course from start to finish on the full health and safety rules and regulations in a peacetime country in six months. So, so we've clearly wasted time arguing it can't be done when it clearly can be done. The question is, how long would it take? I'll come to that in a minute. I think the more fundamental question is, what's available and, and are those that have them prepared to give them up? Um, you know, the, the West right now is clearly preparing to square off against Russia in order to deter them to do anything more. So so NATO doesn't want to weaken itself, obviously. So therefore, there's, there's a conflict here of what can I give Ukraine without weakening the, the NATO defensive line? But at the same time, recognizing that the, the stronger Ukraine is, the more, um, you know, occupied russia is in ukraine then the less of the risk becomes to the rest of nato so that so there, there is a there is a balance there to be struck an f-16 is is an obvious answer i mean i i don't have the current orbit you, you can look at those deserts in the states and see the numbers of airplanes in storage many of which are in not too bad condition you know i would argue despite the fact they've been in the desert for years they're probably in better nick than some of the poor ukrainian aircraft that are, are absolutely being ground into the dust i would think in terms of how much uh, punishment they're taking so so there are platforms out there it would need to be something relatively plentiful so you can give them without taking them away from your own orbit and they would need to be relatively simple to operate and and manage F-16 is a really good example of a platform that 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 sort of fulfills that um, that requirement. So that and, and it's not for me to give away other nations' airplanes. Clearly, that that's for others to decide. But it, let's say it was an F-16. I mean, it would take you roughly six months to learn how to fly or maintain an F-16 to a competent level if you started from scratch. Now. Many of these guys and girls in Ukraine are not starting from scratch. They're, they're veterans, they're experts. More importantly, they've, they've probably learned more in the last six months than I learned in the last six years of my, my, my career um, through, through sheer experience. 
So I think we are we're not giving them the credit that, that their experience already allows them to transition onto something new. It will be different. They fly differently. They, they think differently. They require different skill sets. But let's give these guys and girls some credit. Um, I myself um, did a two week course to get myself to solo stand on a typhoon. I was very lucky as a senior officer. I, we were occasionally allowed to indulge ourselves like that. <laughs> now, if they'd have put me on the squadron the next day, I, I'd have been the worst pilot on the squadron by a country mile and probably needed quite a looking looking after. So I wasn't going to be as stupid to say, hey, that's it. I'm a combat pilot. But if you'd have given me another four weeks, I, I could have done enough to not be useless, you know, to be useful and therefore contribute. And it's a delicate balance. You, you don't want to give somebody a squadron of F-16s and lose them in a week um, through sheer inability to operate them safely. But I think within six weeks, certainly within two months, you could get a combat pilot transitioned onto that new platform, especially now with, with the use of simulators, digital technology, and, and keeping the training simple. You know, the role in Ukraine right now is probably pretty straightforward. You, you know your area. That's the good news. You're fighting on home turf. You're fighting within a relatively confined space because of what you can and can't access. And you know that your job is to shoot down MiGs. Well, that's a very simple, straightforward. I'm being flippant. It's not a simple, yeah. but it's, it, it's, it's, it's a well-bounded mission set that you just need. Can I operate the radar? Can I operate with a, a, a pair partner? Can I engage and lock on? And can I fire the missile? Well, that's about three or four switch selections. So what we've got to do is learn three or four switch selections and go practice in the simulator for a couple of weeks and off you go. Now, now, the Russians, of course, have fairly sophisticated air defenses, S-400s and others that they've brought into the area, and the Ukrainians have lost a lot of aircraft to those air defenses as well. And suppression of air, uh, enemy air defenses is one of the toughest missions, right, for any air force, and only a few of them really do it well, U.S., U.K., Israel, arguably, and, and maybe a few others. But um, how, do you, how do you train them for that type of mission? Yeah, I mean, it, well, this is a, a almost a wider challenge. I mean, I, I was a squadron commander of a SEAD squadron uh, way back when, so so I I know how this works. The the systems that we had ten or fifteen years ago were designed to take on systems that maybe had a, a fighting range of thirty forty kilometers. Uh, and we had systems that could engage their weapons faster than they could engage us. And, and that was what's known as DAD, actually, destruction of enemy air defenses rather than suppression of enemy air defenses. There's a whole raft of techniques. The first thing you can do is avoid it. So just stay out of its way. Now, some people do that by staying very, very low. Well, that doesn't work as easily anymore because some of these systems can still detect you. So that that, that has become... Although the Ukrainians have do, been doing that fairly effectively in the Donbass, flying super low and you know taking a lot of risk. Definitely. So. Yeah, definitely. And and if the S-400, if, they, if they're not going to bring the S-400 too far forward or an S-300 for that matter, and it'll, it'll still clearly be probably on Russian soil, um, then it, it, it's still a long way away. If you're, you know, a long way from it and staying low, then its detection range is, is dramatically reduced. And even if it does detect you, if you happen to go higher or it picks you up at a gap, you've got a lot of time to be able to get the aircraft down and away uh, and, and start hiding behind, you know, geography, etc. So So there are simple ways um, to try and stay away from being shot. Having said that, the, these weapon systems now are, are highly effective. Let, let's not belittle them. They, 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 they are pretty sophisticated. Uh, it's not a death ray, but, but it, it, it's not a million miles away from that. 
The other way you get away from it is you try and uh, spoof it. You, you can try and get it to see the wrong target. So you can use drones, you can use other systems that will try and deflect the, uh, the targets uh, away from it. You can use chaff, you can use jamming, electronic jamming, all of these techniques designed to degrade or deceive those enemy systems. So that's the next level of defense. There's actually a third level of defense, which, which even you know, is so new now, it wasn't around 10, 15 years ago uh, and you can maybe use cyber techniques you can attack it from behind you can get into the network and begin to break down the network through uh, attacking the, the, the network itself um, because if a system's operating on its own and it doesn't have a, a broader uh, search pattern or other systems feeding in it, it instantly starts to degrade in its performance yeah, After that, all that probably of that, only works if it's an actual integrator defense system as opposed to uh, a standalone uh, battery that, that's not absolutely be Absolutely. And of course, the beauty of the system, because they won't have many of these sites, the beauty of their system will be that they will try and integrate it. So they're trying to gain as much information as possible. Of course, the more they try and integrate, the more vulnerable they potentially come. So so they may deliberately operate independently because they're worried about that threat. Well, that's already then worked. It's already denuded them slightly. So, so there's a positive before you even start. Um, so and then 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 what's left well what's left then is you try and kill it before it kills you now that is not simple particularly when we're talking ranges of hundreds of kilometers but you've got high mass systems in theater you've got other methods perhaps um you can do it i'm not going to say what it is but there are other ways you can do this where you can go and attack that system long before it can attack you and 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 those techniques are definitely out there and can be employed um and it doesn't have to be done in coordination because it, it that doesn't happen have to have to happen simultaneous with you doing your other mission. Um, and then and then there's when you self-defend when when you might have had a missile that you can fire at them when they fire at you. But you are now getting to the realms of a highly sophisticated CAD operator. And and I would not expect someone to get to that level of sophistication in a relatively short space of time. So you would be looking at either staying away jamming or deceiving through other means or trying to kill these systems through other means as well that 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 would be the sort of CAD campaign i would be looking at in ukraine now the uh russians have been bringing some of their more sophisticated aircraft into the battle the the latest su-57 uh have been used uh in in ukraine now um how much of a threat do those types of aircraft po would pose to either the mig-29s or the f-16 should they be provided yeah, well, wouldn't that be interesting? I mean, there, there's there's another whole side to this that, um, you know, how much does Russia really, I mean, why has Russia made so much fuss about aeroplanes? You know, we, we've put high miles in there. We've put 155 millimeter shells in there thousands. And although Russia has probably said, you know, if you arm these guys, you know, we, there will be consequences. Well, we have armed them and there haven't been consequences. So why do they then make such a fuss about but don't give them any aeroplanes because i think they're frightened they are desperately worried that their their new box of tricks su-57s or whatever actually when it comes right down to it may not be up to the task and actually i think they're a little bit nervous that if the ukrainians were given a few more assets and maybe something a little bit different 
because of course they understand the MiG-29. They, you know, it make, Ukraine and Russia knows exactly how each other fights because they've pretty much got the same equipment and of course, you know, have, have been selling each other the same equipment. So there's a familiarity with both sides. If a new weapon turns up, Russia had never fought an F-16 in anger. I think they'll be quite nervous that they even know how to do it properly. And just maybe, just maybe, things may um, not turn in their favor. And imagine this, an F-16 that was built, what, 30, 40 years ago, manages to shoot down an Su-57? Wow. Imagine that, the ripples that would go through Russia. That, that would put a crimp on their export market as well. Oh, it would be, be worse than that. I mean, yeah, it would definitely be a financial impact. But where's the credibility? So all this investment you've put in your new technology and the Ukrainians turn up of six weeks training and shoot one of them down with an airplane that's been in the desert for 20 months, 20 years. So I, I think that there, there's there's some really interesting factors at play here that that, you know, I, I think, you know, Russia, Russia must be thinking long and hard here about whether it's as good as it thought it was. I mean, I've I have certainly completely readjusted my view of what I thought Russia was capable of, you know, and I think we made that problem in the cold war we i think we thought they were nine foot tall and and would conquer all and then we discovered when when the wall came down that um or the iron curtain came down that 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 the barracks were in terrible order their troops weren't well trained their equipment wasn't well maintained and actually was pretty crude so what we saw on the surface and what we believed in the glossy brochure turned out not to be true and unless russia's being really clever over the last six months and deliberately dumbing down we haven't exactly seen them um, perform very well this time. So so maybe these wonderful toys that uh, they, they like to show off aren't quite as good as everybody thinks they are. And if the operators well, haven't trained in a dynamic environment, and we know they haven't, then they won't know how to operate like right. that. Yeah, and that, I was just about to make the same point. The, the, the planes may, themselves may be potentially good, but if you don't have enough training and flight hours on them, you're not going to be as effective in those um, in those um, platforms. Now, what about munitions? Yeah, Obviously so uh, a- let me tell you a little story about the way that um, the, the Soviet tactics, if you like, are applied. Because it's it, it tells you a story about how they fight rather than what they fight with. So I, I remember going very soon after the uh, Cold War to a Polish airbase where we were reaching out to them, obviously, when the uh, Iron Curtain came down. And when we visited their squadron... They had a, it was a MiG-21 squadron. They had a um, a bunch of pavements outside their ops room where they literally had these um, intercept profiles painted on the on the pavement, and they would sit there and, and or stand there and walk through these these intercept profiles. So it was a very regimented, very predictable approach to uh, intercepts. It, there's no Western way of warfare that looks remotely like that. We're far more fluid with our tactics. We we tend to go up with a number of game plans, but then we employ what we see in front of us and come up with an idea of how you're going to meet that threat. So even though Russia may have some uh, modern equipment that may or may not compete at fourth or fifth generation, they don't have enough training and they don't have the tactics to exploit some of that. So I'm pretty confident that, that Ukraine can use these guerrilla type tactics to, to get inside that and to really expose, should we say, some both some poor tactics, rather rigid tactics, but also a lack of training in the more advanced techniques. Yeah, and if you look at what they're doing right now with their 
MiG-29s and other old aircraft uh, still in the fight four or five months after the start of the invasion. It's uh, pretty remarkable. But let me ask you about munitions, because that's going to be another big challenge, right? You have so many dozens of munitions that you can mount on an F-16, everything from Sidewinder missiles and AMRAMs and obviously different types of bombs uh, for different types of missions. How do you sort of train them on the different weapons packages and provide enough um, uh, of the munitions to them uh, to execute the different missions that they're going to need to do? Yeah, it, it is a big challenge. And I think the simple way around it is to keep it as straightforward as possible. You know, that you, you just need a couple of good air-to-air weapons and a couple of good air-to-ground weapons. You don't need to overcomplicate the thing. Um, we have rules of thumb, as we call them, to employ these weapons so that you know roughly what the envelope is. So you begin to get a very quick understanding of how to employ them. The, the great thing is, is that the aircraft today, um, and certainly an F-16 or uh, Gripen, Typhoon, whatever, has some really good software that, that automates a lot of the decision making. So if you are able to lock up a target on radar, um, then the system will work out the, the best performance shot, the highest, if you like, PK shots, perform, uh, sort of probability of kill shot. Um, and we'll even tell you when to pull the trigger. So it, it is it is quite intuitive. And more importantly, that the system looks after you in giving you um, the right moments to, to intercept from the right angles and at the right distances. So that, that could be learned quite quickly. And, it, it sounds and, like I mean, it's, it's almost like a video game. It's so easy. Well, it, it it is, and and I, you know, I, people may not realize this, but the the, the sophistication today uh, of an Xbox or a PlayStation, and some of the some of the symbology that you see on those games, particularly on some of the more advanced sort of PC games, are very very close replicas of the real thing, and and it is that straightforward. You know, you have a in a, in a head-up display, you'll have this giant circle, which will effectively show you the range of the weapon. And it'll show you where the target is in terms of its range, what the maximum and the minimum range of the missile is. And you just need to put the target in the heart of the envelope and pull the trigger. You know, and let the missile do the rest of the work. It's, um, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's simple. It, it clearly requires a lot of training to be really, really good at it. But to be 80% good at it, you can get there very, very quickly, particularly if you've already got a grounding in, in that type of thinking and that type of flying. We're, and we're not talking here about bringing a pilot from, from the very beginning of training. We're talking about taking an experienced Ukrainian combat pilot and merely training them in the new system. Okay, so you've made a very compelling case so we can solve the training issues, the transportation, the munition selections, the different attack missions that they can execute. What about maintenance and repair? Because these aircrafts are very complex systems. They're not like repairing your you know, 1970s car. Uh, the electronics, the avionics are very, very uh, sophisticated. What happens when it breaks? What happens when you need to do regular maintenance on it? Um, and how do you train the ground crew for that? Yeah, and it's a very good question. And it, it's one that's often brought up by others that it doesn't matter how good a pilot might be at getting into the cockpit. Um, if you can't maintain the airplane and make it work, then then that you'll last a week or two. So a number of things. I mean, at the end of the day, systems in airplanes have some similar characteristics. So so some of that will read across. If if Ukraine clearly has got experienced engineers, you know, they'll they'll get the basics. The rest of it can be helped because if you're using sort of remote assistance, virtual reality, um, head cameras with digital um, manuals, then there must be a way to help remotely 
Ukrainian engineers manage the new systems. A lot of them these days are box in, box out, and you then send the box back to repair back at a depot way back behind the main lines. So, so it doesn't have to be a lot of first line activity. And I think the other important thing to realize is the Ukrainians are in a battle of national survival here. You know, that the stakes could not be higher. We are not expecting them to operate these airplanes to the highest standards of peacetime safety performance. You know, we, we can cut corners. We don't need to do the same amount of scheduled maintenance. We don't necessarily need to have every system at peak performance. So so there will be ways of cutting corners in order to uh, to keep getting the aircraft airborne safe enough that they'll bring the bring the pilot back home and, and carry out the mission and then do another one. So there's lots of compromise. I think there can be a lot of sort of help from behind at distance in, in using digital connections. And and the fact that the aeroplanes are actually pretty good once once they're working, um, you'd be surprised how good they are at keep going. It's only when you apply peacetime rules about what you can and can't fly with that you end up in around a 70, 80 percent serviceability, which is pretty typical for a Western squadron these days. And when it comes to repair, um, I mean, is the system modular enough where you can pull things out and send them back to Western countries for repair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of that is very simple. It is literally a line replaceable unit. It is literally a black box behind a small um, cover that you literally just pop off. Um, You just literally disconnect two wires and pop it out and put a new one in. It it can be that straightforward. You know, swapping out an engine is admittedly a little bit harder. But even that, you know, when you're trained, it can take a couple of hours. But untrained, obviously, it'll take a bit longer. But it's certainly something you can do in a day. So yeah, it's um, it's doable. It, it I don't want to overstate how 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 hard it would still be to, to manage some of the complexity, but if you if we give them enough and we give them enough spares, I think they'll find a way to make sure. And and look at what they've done so far. We've got to give them some credit here for being able to keep a very small fleet still flying. You know, these guys are not these are not amateurs. These guys know what they're doing. Absolutely. So we we talked um, throughout this podcast about fixed wing aircraft. What about rotor? What about helicopters? Um, they're getting some some Soviet era helicopters. Uh, obviously, they have their own, but uh, Czechia is providing Mi twenty four Heinz attack helicopters. US is now sending uh, Mi seventeen transport and gun- gunship helicopters that were originally destined for Afghanistan. Uh, but at some point, uh, you know, we're going to run out of these Soviet uh, platforms uh, because there's just not enough of them in Western countries. And you're going to start looking at uh, Western helicopters, Apache and the like. Do you think that the same lessons that you just went through with fixed wing aircraft can apply to rotor? In theory, yes. I, I, I think that the challenge here is um, that if we give them, you know, 10 different types or five different types, then the logistical challenge and the training challenge just gets far too complicated you know, most air forces today will try and trim themselves down to a couple of types because it makes sense. It's 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 not only an economy of scale in terms of training, but it means your logistics train only has to cope with it, with it, with it, maybe one or two types. So we, we've got to be wary here of just giving Ukraine five of this, five of that and 10 of the other because it, it will get harder for them. So we, we should where we can possibly do so, give them as, as common a fleet or at least fleets that are sort of interchangeable in terms of weapon systems or spares. I think the helicopter challenge is a slightly different one from fixed wing. I mean, the helicopters are obviously going closer. 
Uh, in theory, they are potentially a lot more vulnerable, particularly when flying near the front line. So, so they do have a whole different challenge. I mean, to give somebody something like an Apache and, and to operate, which is a highly sophisticated airplane. I mean, that, that, that is an F-16 plus some in terms of complexity. And it, it requires two people and, and both of them have to work very closely together. So the training bill for that is probably a little higher. Um, and it depends what you want to do with it, because if, if all you're looking to do is maybe move troops around and maybe take out the odd target, then then maybe the sophistication of Apache is is overkill. But it, it it's it's very much about demand versus push as well. I think we should listen to the Ukrainians as, and, and in terms of what they need and find a way to give them that. The, the problem is, of course, this, this looked like a short term problem. So we were throwing short term solutions. We've now been doing this for six months. I think we should think about the long term. Let's give them fleets that are consistent and that they can begin to adopt and more importantly, then continue to feed their, their supply of it, because that would obviously help them in the longer term. Well, and, and for that longer term, of course, we, we have to appreciate that now that they've uh, managed to survive as a country, it's very clear that uh, Putin will not succeed in taking over uh, all of Ukraine. They're going to need to transfer to Western weapons and uh, eventually, even if this conflict ends in the near future, which is probably unlikely to, uh, because they're going to run out of old Soviet systems and they won't be able to procure them. So eventually they'll have to transfer their air forces to Western fixed wing aircrafts, uh, Western helicopters, uh, Western armor and so forth for their ground forces, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if we were to push the clock forward and look in you know, two, three years time, I'm, I'm not... I'm not going to suggest or comment on whether Ukraine should or shouldn't be in NATO in the in the future, but but clearly you can see that that the West the West are going to be the supplier of choice to the Ukraine for obvious reasons, um, and 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 they are not going to want to be reliant on a on a Russian supply chain for obvious reasons. Um, I think it's also quite key here because Ukraine and Russia, right at the beginning of this war, had very similar equipment. So they, they understood each other to, to quite a high degree because of because of that commonality. I think that then becomes Ukraine's advantage that beginning to fight with Western kit that, that Russia doesn't know, really, doesn't understand. It's not really fought against some of this kit before. And, and that will give Russia another challenge. So I, I think it's to Ukraine's advantage to shift over time here to, to a different supply route and, and to different levels of sophistication and capability. Well, Sir Bagwell, this was just absolutely fascinating. You're really challenging a lot of common wisdom out there with some new ways of thinking and um, your voice is uh, really, really important given your experience uh, to this discussion. And I think you make a very, very compelling uh, case for at least in the near term, providing them with some Western um, platforms like the F-16 and uh, potentially others over a longer period of time. So thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate you lending your expertise to this issue. Thanks, Dimitri. And, and to, to your listeners out there, I think a lot of people will will say that, you know, it, it, what I'm saying is a fantasy. It can't be done. And I think if you if you use traditional wisdom, yes, you come to that conclusion because it's not the way we've done things in the past. But this is not normal. This is a war of national survival. You know, they are killing innocent women and children. This is something where we have to find every way possible to help them. And, and here's the really important thing as well. If not Ukraine, then who's next? And if we don't start to learn how to fly tough and fight dirty, 
and I mean in the sense by dirty I mean in the sense of cutting corners you know taking higher levels of risk accepting that safety standards might have to go in order to maintain a combat edge that that's what's important to get people's heads around here I think we've been fighting wars of choice now for too long uh, and we need to uh, toughen up a little bit here